Good evening, Saints. It is so good to be with you. I, I can't tell you the many times that my soul has been served from this pulpit. Pillar Conference days, this pastor has been served richly as Jesus was preached to me from this pulpit. So thankful to be with you and seek to serve you to do the same tonight. I bring you greetings from the saints at Risen Christ Fellowship in Philadelphia. We, we love you guys. We pray for you often. It's just a delight to be able to, to be with you and to even sing together truths eternal just now. Before us is Genesis 22, the most important chapter in our Bible, the most important chapter in this book of Genesis. And this significant and drama-filled chapter opens up with these words. After these things, God tested Abraham. And I think we do well to pause right there for just a moment. As quick as you and I might want to go to the chapter and to these main events that are on these pages, we do well to pause at these words that God tested Abraham. The nature of the events in this chapter are a test. And if we miss that, this being a test and what follows being a test result, I think we're bound to come to all sorts of misunderstandings, wrong and maybe even dangerous conclusions about the gospel <laughs> or God himself. Misunderstanding this chapter has led many well-known, famous, self-professed atheists to come to all sorts of misrepresenting conclusions about the God of this chapter, the one who is behind this test. And we know who is behind this test, saints. The Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the Lord behind this test. And yet, based on this very chapter, Genesis 22, many still today walk away accusing God for all sorts of hideous insults like child abuse or all sorts of other uninformed accusations at His holy name. It's tragic because in doing so, they miss the point of the chapter and they miss the God behind the chapter, that God who is so abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, it's important that we understand what happens in this chapter and why. So let's briefly talk about this test, because we might think of it in too many or too much human terms, if you will. When you and I think of tests, our minds might immediately think of driver's tests or blood tests or math tests. All those tests are given to reveal things to both the giver of the test and the taker of the test. Uh, the driver instructor and the student, uh, the doctor and the patient. It's important to stress that this here is not that kind of a test. God is not testing Abraham so as to find out what might be in Abraham's heart. This test is given for a completely different purpose. And we know this because we know the God behind the test. Nothing is hidden from God. Psalm 38 not even our hearts, saints. God knows the secrets of the heart. Psalm 44. 
God sees the mind and the heart. Jeremiah 20, the Lord knows our thoughts. Ezekiel 11, friends, we serve an omniscient God, the God who knows all things about all people. God himself did not purpose this test so as to have things revealed to him about Abraham. I think it's actually quite the opposite. God purposed this test so that God might reveal things to Abraham. In other words, the outcome of this test is not so that the Lord might grow in his understanding of Abraham. The other way around. The outcome of this test is purposed so that Abraham might grow in his understanding of the things of God. Now, of course, it's true. It's a test for Abraham. And through this test, yes, Abraham will learn some very important things about his own heart, about the condition of his heart, and the extent and the grounds of his faith. This is all true. But as we'll see as this chapter unfolds, through this test, we'll see that it's Abraham who is learning about some very important things about the heart of God and the glory and the extent of his faithfulness to Abraham. And I think that's what this test is mainly for, to reveal that, the glory and the extent of God's faithfulness to Abraham. And I think the intent for us is the same tonight as the ones considering this chapter. This test in Genesis 22 is intended to demonstrate the same to us. Yes, we might learn some things about our heart's condition or the needs for our heart. But more importantly, this chapter is given to, uh, to us that, that I and you might grow in our understanding glory in and rest in the extent of God's faithfulness to us in Jesus. Friends, we serve the Lord God, the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this chapter has a whole lot to say about all of that. With that said, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us to that end. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for all of your word. And we thank you in particular tonight for this chapter, Genesis 22. And Father, your word is truth. And we need it because through it you feed us and you sanctify us. And Father, sanctify all of us in your truth tonight and encourage us, Lord, in your word as we consider this amazing chapter. Help us, Lord, as we do so uh, to behold uh, the Lord Jesus in your word. Give us all eyes. We've prayed for this before, but give us all here eyes to see uh, the Lord Jesus. Help all of us to trust in him uh, tonight. And Father, we pray this for our good, for our joy, and for the glory of your name in our lives. Through Jesus, who is Lord, we pray this. Amen. Saints, I've titled my message, Faith and Faithfulness at Mount Moriah. Faith and Faithfulness. I think that's what the chapter lays out for us at this mountaintop of Moriah. Faith and Faithfulness. Two points, really. Let's consider our first point, faith. I think it's pretty clear, saints, that although a significant chapter in and of itself Genesis 22 was not intended to be read or studied in isolation. 
as a standalone event or story as most of our children's Bibles presented. Uh, that's why the first words that Moses pens down read after these things. And it's so good that y'all have been in this book, <laughs> starting at, I think, chapter 12, 10 weeks ago or so. Y'all have been considering the life of this man, Abraham. You know the important backdrop of this story. But just in case, and in order for the entire weight of this chapter to kind of hit us, I think, in the, in the way it's intended to, uh, we should briefly recount what's preceded this chapter. As you have been studying through the life of Abraham, I trust that you've likely grown familiar with the call of Abraham and God's promise to him. It's Genesis 12. I read of the calling of Abraham. Go to the land that I will show you. And then immediately after, we hear these words of promise. And I will make of you a great nation, right? And, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Major promise. Now, for all of that to be fulfilled, clearly a lot would need to happen. But first and foremost, all those promises require one thing first, a son, <laughs> a son. And this promise of a son, this child of promise, has been front and center in these many chapters in Genesis covering the life of Abraham. For 25 years, you've read last week, Abraham had pondered these words of promise. For 25 years, this man waited, at sometimes with obedience, trusting the Lord, waiting patiently, but oftentimes not so much, sometimes quite the opposite even. We read of great impatience and sin and deceit and manipulation, and that's the reason why 11 years after the, the promise to Abraham, this, this little boy Ishmael enters the scene. Ishmael, a son, but not this son, not the rightful heir, not the son of promise. It would take 25 full years until we finally encounter these glorious words in the preceding chapter. Last week's chapter opens like this. Just, just, for, just listen to this once more. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Glorious words, as he had said. Words speaking of God's nature, <laughs> that great faithfulness we've already considered. God is not a man that he should lie, just as he had promised. The Lord is a promise-keeping God, friends. And so we find in Genesis 21, the, the glorious resolution and to the promise that was made all those years ago, Isaac was born, uh, God delivered, praise be. Uh, God made good on his promises. The child of promise was given. 25 agonizing years of waiting, just instantly forgotten. Everything is smiles and laughter in the house of Abraham. Oh, great happiness had come to that particular family. An abundance of joy. And it's after all of that that we then read these unmistakable and heart-piercing words of chapter 22. From God to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, 
whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a birth offering. Friends, those, those words hit. I think you and I, I mean, we know that this is a, this is a test and, and we know how the story ends, but Abraham in that moment doesn't know any of that. I think you and I can try to imagine what this must have been like for Abraham, but I, I don't think we come close to experience or understand how those words must have hit that man. These words were spoken to Abraham. So we're not words spoken to a man being asked to offer up a son. Abraham was commanded to offer up the son, the son of promise. And of course, a child, but it's not just a child that God is asking of him. It would have been painful enough, of course. It's the child and all that this child represents to Abraham that God asks of him. I think that's what makes this particular command for Abraham so weighty. Isaac is whom Abraham has hoped for all these years. And rightly so. How else would God's promise come through him to all the nations but through this one son? And so we see that in this one test, God gets at the heart of the heart of Abraham. And in a sense, we see the following question undergird this test. Abraham, do you trust me? Or has the child whom you have all these years hoped for, has he become the one whom you have put all your hope in? All of that will be revealed to us as God asks of Abraham the sacrifice of all sacrifices in a burned offering. Friends, a burned offering, a common offering at Abraham's day. And out of all the different types of offerings we know from the scripture, the burned offering was the one sacrifice that required that the animal sacrifice be entirely burned up on the altar. All of it, the skin of the animal, its fat, its bones, just completely. And of course, the willingness to sacrifice the entirety of a precious animal was meant to communicate the totality of one's devotion to God. And it's this principle of one's total devotion to God that God is after in this sacrifice. I think we hear this principle again and again throughout the scriptures in these famous words, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Words that the Lord Jesus would later refer to as the great and the first commandment. I think it's that principle that we see embodied in this, in this command to, to offer up Isaac as a burned offering. God is asking Abraham, do you love me in that way? So, how does Abraham respond? I want to read to you verses 3, 4, and particularly verse 5 which gives us Abraham's immediate response to God's command to go out and sacrifice, offer up Isaac. And as we consider Abraham's response, saints, I hope it encourages you, Christians, as we'll see in Abraham a certain hope and a certain faith and a certain confidence in which you and I actually share tonight. 
And that's encouraging for us to see. Let me read to you verses 3 to 5. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Let me have you look at verse 5, in particular the latter part of that sentence. And let me give you a more wooden translation, a more literal translation of these words that Abraham spoke to his servants. There's three verbs that Abraham mentions, going, worshiping, and coming back. And the beautiful thing about these verbs is that they're all in the first person, plural. And this is how the then reads. Says to his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there. And we, I and the boy, will worship. And we, I and the boy, will come again to you. These are significant words because they reveal something very important about the extent of faith that Abraham had in that, in that moment. They're that important that the author of Hebrews even calls attention to the heart behind these words. Hebrews 11.19 writes this of Abraham. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And just here it is again. I and the boy will go over there. I and the boy will worship. I and the boy will come back to you again. Friends, Abraham knew what needed to happen on that mountain. He knew. He cut the wood himself. And we know that Abraham had every intention to follow through with what he had set out to do. I'm sure heartbroken, disturbed physically to his inner being, what, what father would not be. But Hebrews tells us that whatever he was required to do on that mountaintop, to give to God all that he had been given by God as an act of worship, whatever was required of Abraham, of this Abraham was sure, I and the boy will worship. I and the boy will come back to you again. And, and no, we must not understand this as Abraham's wishful thinking or seeking to cover up what, what he was about to do to his servants. This was faith. Faith professed and faith put into action as he went up that mountain with Isaac. Considering that God was able even to raise his boy from the dead. Friends, it would have been so easy, even natural, for Abraham to trust in and to hope in what God had actually already provided for him in Isaac. It's much harder to trust in and hope in God in the God behind the provision of what he was blessed with in Isaac. And particularly in this situation where he was asked to give him up. I would not be surprised if that gentle rebuke from Genesis 18, just a couple of chapters back, had entered Abraham's mind at some point. Is anything too hard for the Lord, Abraham? 
it becomes clear that Abraham had, had come to believe some things about God. And I think it's this, that God's word of promise that had come to pass in Isaac cannot be undone. His word will stand. Abraham had come to believe that God's word was a sure foundation to stand on. And that God, the, the God of the word can be trusted at all times, even when circumstances don't make sense to us, even when following the Lord is agonizing, as this was for Abraham, or when following God comes at a very high cost, as it did for Abraham, even when we do not know what possible good can come out of situations that the Lord, by His sovereign hand, puts us in to test us, to show us what's in our heart and where our, our trust and hope is at. It's in all those situations that the God of the word can be trusted. And Abraham re reveals that, that even this heartbreaking test, that his heart was actually very much alive. And we see in this where Abraham's hope lies. And friends, I wonder if you see it, where is Abraham's hope anchored? It was not in his earthly blessings, it was not even in the hope that somehow the son would be spared last minute. All of Abraham's hope was literally beyond the grave. His hope was built on what God could do after the grave. That this precious boy, if need be, would be raised again to life. That's what he believed about God. His faith was placed in the God who is greater than the grave. And so Abraham was not coming to God for the things of God, but for God himself. He was not seeking or guarding or holding on to earthly blessings. The blessings of God here and now as good and pleasant as they were for him. But with all that was in him, he held on to whom he knew God to be. He was not seeking to maintain what God had given him, but he was seeking to obey the God who he knew would not withhold from him any good thing. His hope was in the God of the resurrection. His hope was in the God who was able to conquer the grave if need be. Friends, this is Genesis 22. We're not even halfway through the first book of the Bible and gospel bells are ringing everywhere. Hope in the God of the resurrection. Here is a man whose hope is in God, the God who is greater than the grave. Blessed is the man whose hope is in God, because that hope does not put him to shame. And this chapter tells us that God did not put Abraham to shame. We read that God richly blesses Abraham's faith. We know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And this chapter makes it clear that God was very pleased. God blesses his faith-filled obedience. And we see that in this very important paragraph that follows directly after the sacrifice, in which God reaffirms his covenant promises to Abraham. His faith in God grants him blessings from God. Covenant blessings, that is. God's covenant with Abraham is reaffirmed, and it's how it's done that we should pay attention to. It's important to see that none of the actual covenant is staked on Abraham. And we know this because we've already seen that uh, in Genesis 15 as well, when the covenant first gets established. 
Abraham is put in a deep sleep by the Lord, and the Lord alone enters into covenant with Abraham. So here in verse 16 of our text, the Lord is clear to emphasize who is reaffirming and who will be keeping this covenant. We see in verse 16 that the Lord swears by himself, by his own name, his covenant name. There's no greater name than that that you can swear by. And he does it because there's no other name to swear by. By the name that cannot be but faithful. His covenant with Abraham and all the promises that are included in that covenant, promises that affect you and me, by the way, all of that is staked not on Abraham and what he can bring to God and what he can do for God. It's all staked on the name of the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that this all is staked on the name of the Lord and on the Lord alone, God makes really, really clear in the event that happens on that mountaintop. Abraham, yes, was willing to provide the sacrifice, and he would have, so much so that, that his faith brought him to expect a resurrection on that mountain. Well, what Abraham got was not a resurrection. What he got was substitution. <laughs> And in that substitution, we see so clearly that God's covenant relies both on what He promises and in what He alone provides. Great, indeed, is His faithfulness, which is the second point, a very important point in the text. Let me just read three verses from this chapter, verses 10 to 12. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Beautiful words. And friends, if the main thing that we were meant to see in this chapter is Abraham's faith, this chapter would have ended after these verses. The test is done. Abraham has completed the test. But that's not how the chapter ends. And we thank God that that's not how this chapter ends. <laughs> thank God that there's more that happens on that mountain. Instead of Isaac just getting off the altar, whew, that was close and that's it. And everyone just goes about their business. What the text tells us is this in verse 13, that Isaac got off the altar unharmed and alive because there was a substitute that in his place was harmed and did lose his life. Amen. Yes, the Lord told Abraham to not touch or harm the boy, but we read nothing of Abraham being excused of the actual burnt offering. We read not... God saying to Abraham, don't worry about that burnt offering, by the way. I've seen enough. We're good. On the contrary, the divine provision of the ram actually implies that Abraham was still required to offer up this all-encompassing sacrifice, this burned offering to God. And I think it's important that we see that though this, though still required, 
this sacrifice no longer comes at any cost or expense for Abraham. What God truly requires in the principle of that all-encompassing burnt offering, only God can provide. And when God shows, and what God shows here to Abraham and to Isaac and to us as spectators of this text is a type of sacrifice that will be forever talked about. It's a type of sacrifice that we've already sung about tonight and will be forever sung about. God's glorious and necessary provision of a substitute sacrifice. Someone else in your place, someone else in my place, that all-encompassing burned offering, signifying one's complete obedience, signifying one's unwavering faithfulness to God, signifying one's uncorrupted devotion to God. God shows here that that sacrifice that God requires, no man can provide. No one, not even this great father of the faith, Abraham, not even his sacrifice of Isaac would come close to what God in his holiness requires. And the glory of our text, of course, is that we see that, that God demonstrates to us that that sacrifice he only can provide and that he is willing to provide it, that he actually does provide it. God will provide the lamb for the burned offering. And Abraham had come to know that in a very personal way. That's why Abraham renames this entire mountain. He gives this mountain a name. He names this mountain after what happened on that mountain. And I love how the King James uh, translates this, uh, different than all the other translations and more accurately from the Hebrew. Listen to this from uh, the King James, verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, literally translated, the Lord will see to it. As it is set to this day, in the mound of the Lord, it shall be seen too. Saints, this is such a good name for that particular mountain. The mound on which the Lord will see to it. Such a great name. And I think it implies that Abraham knows himself he could not have seen to it himself. The Lord will see to it. Because what I, what I bring does not suffice. The Lord will see to it. And that's what happened on that mountain. Abraham may have demonstrated great willingness, great faith, and great obedience. All of those were present. But Abraham on that mountain had come to see that that was not sufficient. He, could, he was not in need of, of, of providing. He was, he was in need of something he could not provide. We know that Abraham knew this because in the moment of that divine substitution, in the moment of this divinely appointed sacrificial animal provided in the stead of Isaac, Abraham was given eyes to see God's great plan of redemption for people like him and for people like you and me. In the moment of that sacrifice provided so that his son might live, Abraham was given eyes to see this. He was, he was given eyes to see the most important day that was yet ahead of him, a day in which the Lord would see two things that no mere man could see too. Abraham was given understanding that though genuine faith like he had demonstrated and his obedience and his willingness are all pleasing to God, Abraham understood that those things would not make things automatically right with God. 
Friends, Abraham knew his own resume. He knew what was uploaded on his LinkedIn, if you will. He knows what he's done. He knows that the hands that built that altar there, even the willing hands that laid Isaac on that altar, he knows that those hands were not clean. I think Abraham knows that even in this moment of great obedience, such as on display here, that 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 does not somehow magically make up for all those moments, heinous moments of great disobedience and faithlessness or weakness prior. Abraham, in the moment of seeing the sacrificial substitute for Isaac, saw the day in which the Lord would see to his greatest of needs, that need that we, like Abraham, all have to have our resumes cleaned up, to have our sins cleaned off and washed away. Abraham saw that day, the day of the Lamb of God appointed, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was the day that Abraham saw, and we know this because Jesus tells us he did. The Lord Jesus, who so beautifully proclaimed in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham, I am, or before Abraham was, I am. Right before that statement in John 8, Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. He was glad. He saw it, and he was glad. He saw it when he lifted his own son of the altar, He saw it when he lifted up his eyes and saw the ram. He saw it when he, together with Isaac, watched the blood of the substitute trickling down the altar instead of the blood of his own son. Oh, he saw that day and he was glad. Of course, Abraham was glad. Glad because he had seen God's great plan of redemption and how that would come to pass in one final sacrifice appointed. Of course, Abraham was glad. He had experienced gladness. He had received a gift in this animal, a gift. He knew it was going to be a gift that was going to be given, a gift given to those who do not deserve him. Friends, what what gladness should fill our hearts as we ponder the gift that is given to us in Christ, if indeed you have received him. Abe, Abraham, had come to understand that this sacrifice was not earned but given, not earned, but to be received by faith. That's why Abraham was provided the substitute, his faith. But friends, Abraham was glad to see that day, the day of Jesus. Abraham experienced in the flesh that God's appointed sacrifice saves and gives life. How vivid, again, this picture of Isaac. This little boy is good as dead climbing off that altar as the, as the appointed sacrifice of God takes his place and dies in his stead. That's what Jesus has done for us, saints. That's the day that Abraham saw. Abraham didn't just see a day. That day actually took place. And not long after Jesus makes these statements about Abraham in John 8, that day came. The day that God would see to it what no man could see to as he gave his appointed sacrifice for a people dead in their sin and far from God to give them life and to bring them into his covenant family. 
to bring them too into the covenant promises he has just given to Abraham. And on that day, God the Father unleashed the full wrath of God on God the Son, lifting up his knife, if you will, to his Son, not to those who deserve it, who have earned it as their wages of sin, literally, but to God the Son, not a Son, the Son, his only Son, the Son whom he loved, Jesus. We hear John 3.16 in these words. God so loved the world that he gave up his only son. So much did he love us. He gave him up to die. The righteous for the unrighteous, friends. And the relief that Isaac experienced on that Mount Moriah, that Jesus did not receive any of that. He was the substitute. There was no substitute for Jesus. He became, he came to be our substitute. And he endured the wrath. And he died so that you and I, through faith in him, might actually have life in his name tonight. Friends, it's mind-boggling to me that all of that, the crucifixion and the death of the Lord Jesus, it took, probably, it took place probably not too far from where Abraham and Isaac experienced God's life-saving redemption. Our text tells us that Abraham and Isaac were on Mount Moriah, a mountain that's only mentioned twice in our Bibles, once here and in 2 Chronicles 3, where we read that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. That's one special mountain, friends. God has been meeting with his people Israel on Mount Moriah from the very beginning. So much so that his temple was built there. That's where hundreds of thousands of animals were sacrificed, through which people were able to draw near to God. They made atonement for sins. And it's no accident at all that the Lord Jesus was crucified and buried there, just outside of the walls on, of that great city on that same mountain. It's also no accident that Abraham had called this mountain the mountain on which the Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to it on this mountain. Oh, did the Lord see to it on that mountain? Years later, we hear the echoes of these words. One more time on that mountain. It is finished. It's seen to. It is finished. On that mountain, it was seen to, saints. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave on that mountain. That too was seen to, just as he had said, just as he had promised. And Jesus appeared all over that mountain where the Lord had seen to it. Alive, risen from the grave, victorious over death, calling for all to come to him to receive rest for your souls, to come to him so that we might come to share in that same great faith and that same great hope and that same great confidence that Abraham had in his day. Faith in the one who is able to conquer death. Hope that is anchored far beyond the grave. All because in Jesus, you and I can rest. Not because we 
have to do things for God, but in him what God has seen to us for on Mount Moriah. Friends, when you and I read Genesis 22, there's all sorts of lessons we can draw. But the main lesson is this, that you and I are called to behold God's final sacrifice, sacrifice appointed, to behold the Lamb of God. And we're called to believe in Him and to follow Him and to trust in Him. The one who gave His Son, His only Son, the Son He loved and with whom He will give us all things. He will see to all of that. I'll trust in Him tonight, saints. Let's give thanks in His name. Father, we give you thanks for beholding things that only you could have seen too. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for what he in our place has seen too, and for bringing us life and to you. Father, we ask now things that only you can do too, to give life to increase our faith, to give us joy in all that we've heard in Jesus tonight. Father, we thank you for the Lamb. Worthy is that Lamb. Amen.